0: The reading is Luke 23, verses 26 to 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen.
1: Well, great. If you turn to that passage there, you'll find that helpful to follow along. I am very much overdue employing some new technology this morning. I'm hoping that it will not fail on me or maybe more to the point, I will not fail it. Uh, which is more likely. Here we go. I think I'm winning. Excellent. Fantastic. On the journey to the cross, Jesus already in in the past few weeks that we've been seeing this story play out has been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been judged. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been rejected by the mass of the people. And the organising thought that Jesus has given us, and we've returned to it several times, is that all of this is happening according to God's plan. And all of this is happening to fulfil scripture. It doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't feel right. But it is. One of my favorite songs growing up my hero by the Foo fighters he sings don't the best of them bleed it out while the rest of them peter out and that's what we see as jesus comes to his dying moments here and i want to show you just four words from this story this morning despair forgiveness identity and faith and i think they organize what is happening here for us firstly we see Despair. And if you look at those first sort of five, six verses there from 26 to 31, you'll see this theme play out. Every now and again, I like to give you a little bit of highbrow culture just to, um, you know, make myself look a bit better. No, I'm a Renaissance man. I, I sort of, just as much as I watch Selling Sunset, I, I like a bit of highbrow stuff too. John Paul Sarch, uh, French existentialist philosopher, sure you'll have heard of him too, uh, said, life begins on the other side of despair. It's a human reality to face suffering and adversity and pain and therefore to face despair in life, isn't it? And so Sartre's point is, life really begins at the point at which we have overcome despair and come out of it. And this first scene is all about despair. The despair that Jesus faces, the despair that the women feel, and the despair that threatens their future. As they led him away, verse 26 tells us, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. And they laid on him the cross. One of the many punishments of crucifixion was that you would carry the crossbeam up to the crucifixion site. So you would bear that crossbeam across your back. And that would be a heavy weight that would weigh down on you. And there was two reasons for doing that. One is just physically it exhausts you. Even a very physically strong person struggles to keep up with that after a mile or so but it also makes a spectacle of you. It means that you walk slowly. It means that you have to pass by as people look, as they pass comments and judgment. And in a moment of despair, where physical strength is exhausted for Jesus... Remember as well, he's been beaten, he's been whipped. He's been whipped with a cat of nine tails, a leather whip with pieces of glass and metal attached on the end of it that literally would, would rip chunks of your flesh out. And now he's carrying this crossbeam upon his back and his strength is exhausted. And so Simon is called to pick up and carry the cross for Jesus There followed, we're told, a great multitude, verse 27, and among them, women who were mourning for him. The women despair for Jesus, but look at his response. Look at his response there from verse 28 down. The women despair for Jesus, but Jesus does not want and does not need Their despair for his suffering. For he is not a victim. Look at him. He says, verse 28 Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. The despair is in the wrong direction. Don't despair for me, despair for yourselves, for your children. He says, for the days are coming where they'll say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. There's despair at the thought of bringing children into the brokenness of the world and how it may break those children. He says, he'll say to the mountains, verse 30, fall on us that they'll feel in that moment such despair as to feel that it would be better to end the suffering through death than to live through it. And then notice the saddest thing of all, verse 31. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? The point of the imagery is a simple one if they're doing this, but actually, this is a relatively good time. He says the worst is yet to come. Jesus doesn't want and he doesn't need your despair for him as if he's a plucky loser to feel sorry for. Instead, Jesus comes to take upon himself our despair. To lift it from our shoulders. Author and philosopher Henry David Thoreau, his most famous book is called Walden, or A Life in the Woods. He decides he wants to go and he wants to reflect on what is life, what is humanity, what is it to actually live a life on purpose. And so he decides that he'll spend a couple of years living as simply as he can in the woods, and whether At the end of that, he might sort of really find what it is to really live when he's sort of stripped himself of everything else that he could. One of the things he writes in that book is, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Jesus comes to take upon himself your despair. He doesn't ask for your despair at his plight. He has come to take on your despair, my despair. At the cross, Jesus breaks the despair that is over the earth by facing it himself. Sartre said, life begins on the other side of despair. Well, Jesus comes to end despair so we may start to live. The first word is despair. The second word is forgiveness. If you look at verses 32 to 34, this is all about forgiveness. Douglas Murray, social commentator, has reflected on one of the problems of our time. He says, today, we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We don't know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it is a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of fiery certainty and denunciation. In a world that is unsure how to do forgiveness, or if it even should do forgiveness, Jesus offers here surprising grace. Look at this, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And this isn't just a minor sort of side detail here. We've said... All that happens, happens according to God's plan. All that happens, happens to fulfill scripture. Jesus has told us this, and specifically he's quoted Isaiah 53 verse 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. That he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That he dies alongside those who have sinned. That he's amongst them. And that whilst he is... He prays for them. There they crucified him, Luke tells us in the criminals. One on the right, one on the left. Jesus between them. See, the thing with crucifixion is it's not just about the punishment, the physical punishment that happens, but it's also about the stigma and the shame. That Jesus is labelled here as a criminal. He is amongst them. He is seen as just being another one of them. Paul thinks about this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had never sinned. But he takes on our sin. In a moment. That we might become perfect as he was. And so he has to be numbered amongst these criminals, amongst you and I. When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. In your version there of the Bible, whatever it is, you you may possibly have a slightly different translation there. It may possibly say Golgotha, may perhaps say Calvary, Uh, Here in mine, it says the place of the skull. They're all the same place. Uh, In Greek, the word uh, for it is cranium, very, very similar to cranium, that we think of. In the Latin, it's calvarios, and hence, in some translations, it'll tell you calvary. In Aramaic, it's Golgotha. They all mean place of the skull, and they mean that because actually it physically looked like a skull. I've, I've got a picture, hopefully, sort of of that place, and you can get a bit of an idea of uh, of where exactly it is, especially in, in the second picture there. Okay, there you go, you can sort of make out, if you're a visual person, if you're not, it probably means nothing, it's just, it's just some rocks. Uh, you know, but if you're a visual person, I think you can just sort of roughly make out a bit of a, some eyes and a nose, can't you? Here he is, and there's something ironic and visual about the whole place, reminding people of death, and there they crucified him. It's a brutal death, it makes sense of Jesus' anguish earlier on in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this is a fierce love. This is a very fierce love that Jesus displays. A love that goes to such personal cost and pain to die in this manner. A, a love that defines all love. 1 John chapter 4. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, that He loves us first. And that love is defined in this way, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a long, fancy word for saying it's that process of removing just anger for sin. It's what needs to happen if I upset Karis because once again, when I put the cutlery in the dishwasher, I did not sort it neatly into the rack. I had every intention to do so. But I left it still in the pile and it's not perfectly clean at the end. Propitiation is the process thereafter that afternoon where I have to do some groveling and appeasing in order to remove the anger and to restore the relationship to peace and harmony. Jesus is given to make propitiation for our sins, to make things right. Jesus' love is a love of faithfulness and loyalty Love that sacrifices and serves, even if it's not returned to him. And then look at how he expresses that, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is amazing grace to offer. But it shows us also there's a bit of a difference between the religious leaders and the soldiers. Yeah, Jesus is very explicitly saying, forgive them, they know not what they do. You know, there's a difference between knowledge and ignorance and the way that's treated. Ignorance reduces, but doesn't remove, guilt. Not realising that what you did was going to be wrong reduces Anger. You could put it another way around as well, couldn't you? That knowledge multiplies and magnifies guilt. Doing it when you knew it was going to be wrong is worse than doing it when you didn't realize that was wrong. Are we are having incidents uh, at the minute with our youngest. He's sort of at school and so he's learning some new vocabulary not all of it vocabulary, you want them to learn. So he's processing sort of that. There are occasions where that slips out and he doesn't realize. So he's playing with Spider-Man at the dinner table the other day and everything sort of turns sour because he lets the word out and he, he didn't realize. It's about okay. There's other times where he knows full well what he's doing and he'll build up to it and you know it's coming, it's like, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I'm, I'm trying so hard, I'm trying so hard, and then say it. That's different. Now I am angry because you knew. You knew. And you didn't try hard enough. There's a difference between knowledge and ignorance. Forgive them. They know not what they do. The religious leaders know what they're doing. And they do it. These soldiers are doing a job. They don't know who Jesus is. Forgive them for they know not what they do. He forgives first. And yet look. As Jesus is doing this. As he's offering this amazing grace to them. They cast lots to divide his garments. The moment is lost on them. In suffering and a gross miscarriage of justice. Jesus forgives his murderers. Opening forgiveness for us all. It's about despair. It's about forgiveness. Thirdly. It's about identity. Jesus faces a final test of his faith in God's word if you look at verses 35 to 39 there. And it's all about identity. Paul Tripp writes in his book, Do You Believe? Every good thing ever created has existed because on the throne of the universe sits one who is holy in every way all of the time. Your sense of identity, meaning and purpose Your goals for your life, what you long for your loved ones, how you use your energy, time and money, your sense of right and wrong, your means of making decisions, how you use your gifts and abilities, and where you look for peace and rest, must be connected to this declaration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It should both blow your mind, he says, and form the basis of how you make sense of everything. Identity, who we believe ourselves to be, shapes everything that we do. And Jesus faces a final test of his identity. And he does so for us. And he shows us how we can overcome our crises of identity. Way back in chapter 4, Luke documents Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And after that temptation, at the end of it, it tells us, the devil ended every temptation, and he departed until an opportune time. Chapter 4, verse 13, he departed until an opportune time. I don't think that was just one moment. I'm sure that Jesus faced many moments of temptation Later in the New Testament, it tells us he did. It tells us he can understand us in our temptations because he was tempted in every way. But here is one of those opportune times. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ. And I hope that you might see there in that one sentence and it's repeated again three times, there are two things going on. There is a surface level temptation, isn't there? Save yourself. Let him save himself. That's the first part. That's the surface level, isn't it? That's the thing they're looking for him to do. But here's the root as well. And every time this is connected to the temptation. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. That's the real temptation. Jesus, are you going to believe your identity that your father has given you Or are you going to doubt it because of suffering? And yet to doubt his identity as Christ would be to doubt the Father's word. Just as in chapter 4 where he was tempted in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. Just as in Eden in Genesis 3. Did God really say? You won't surely die, you'll be like him. Wouldn't you rather be God than be in God's image as he's told you? It's all about identity, isn't it? It always is. The soldiers also mocked him and offered him sour wine. You might wonder why they offer him sour wine here, aside from fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling uh, the words of a psalm, it was another way in which they could mock him. One commentator, uh, Brawley, puts it, the soldiers are mocking Jesus as a king, a carnival king, and they offer him sour wine instead of the superior beverage appropriate for a king. They look, They test him again, the same test, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's the surface level thing. Save yourself. But the real root is, if you are the king of the Jews. Same challenge. And then Luke spots an irony. Verse 38. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. But will Jesus believe it though? Look at verse 39. The criminals railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us and they throw in that little sweetener there save yourself and and us too is this really the way a king goes is this now it for the son of God why would God allow this You you may remember back a couple of weeks ago Peter was challenged three times you were one of them And he folded, didn't he? He folded. No, I'm not. Jesus here is challenged three times. And he doesn't fold. He follows through. And in a moment where identity is challenged by suffering and pain, Jesus trusts his Father above the noise. And he does that for us, but he also does it to show us how we might persevere too. The story is about despair, it's about forgiveness, it's about identity. And then lastly, in these last three verses here, it's about faith. Because even in Jesus' dying moments, a work of God is going on here as one of the criminals comes to faith in Jesus. One of the criminals has railed at Jesus, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But one answers back, we're told. And answering, the other rebuked him. The word there is really interesting, actually. The English doesn't quite reflect sort of the fullness of of the word, the original language. It's made up of three words, uh, over judgment and truth, apokrinathes. And the idea is passing over the true verdict. It's more than just responding in a conversation. It's one criminal is railed against him. The other is passing over the true verdict to him. The criminal is speaking the truth here, answering the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We could put it much more simply in everyday language. Who are you to judge him? Once, when I I was about 18, I I had a little spell um, helping with some chaplaincy work in Dartmoor Prison near where I live. Uh, or lived at the time and I found amongst many things I learned in that time there's a strange pride amongst criminals because there's this pecking order and it says well I might be bad but I'm not as bad as him but I want you to see the work of God that's going on here within this criminal because he's coming to faith. We see that in four ways. Firstly, there's a fear of God, isn't there? Do you not fear God? He's thought again. And he's realized there is more to fear here this day than Rome. Jesus has said earlier on in his ministry. Matthew records it, chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This criminal has rethought all that he thought he knew about Jesus. Do you not fear God? tells us that he now believes Jesus to be God, to be that one who has power not only over body but soul too. Do you not fear a greater judgment to come? As bad as this is, there is a second death and things can get a whole lot worse. Do you not fear God? There is a fear of God, but secondly, there's a sense of sin, isn't there? Look there still in verse 40. We indeed justly face this penalty, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. When I was first in, in Dartmoor Prison, after those sessions, it was a bit eye-opening, um, and, and the guy who was in charge sort of came to me after, you know, what did you think? How did you get on? Uh, you know, what was that like? And one of the first things I was told afterwards was, you know, they're never guilty. Luke's point there wasn't, he was also called Luke, uh, it wasn't that the criminal justice system is so fundamentally and deeply flawed that prison is full of innocent people charged for the wrong thing, that wasn't his point. His point was, prison is full of a lot of people who are still not ready to take responsibility for what they did do. And they still claim, I never did it. But this criminal has had a sense of his sin, given by God, Because he is in the process of being changed. We indeed justly. For we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. A sure sign that God is working. His redemption within us is a sense of sin. There's a fear of God. There's a sense of sin. But there's a revelation of Jesus, isn't there? Verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. He's changed his tune from a changed mind on Jesus. Because both of these criminals had mocked Jesus. Both of them had railed against him previously. The other gospel writers tell us that. But now this man has rethought everything he thought he knew on Jesus. He's had a revelation of Jesus. Do you not fear God? This man has done nothing wrong. There's a fear of God, there's a sense of sin, there's a revelation of Jesus and then there's a prayer of faith. Look at that in verse 42, how it ends. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a very simple, short prayer of trust, isn't it? Shows us there's no magic words, no special words you have to say. The power isn't, In the prayer itself. It's in the trust that it comes from. And in the Saviour who answers. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And look at Jesus' reply. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Through a simple, honest, real faith. Anyone is welcomed. Anyone can be made clean. Anyone can change. It's about despair. It's about forgiveness. It's about identity. And then it's about faith. I don't know if you saw a little spat on Twitter this week between the Gallagher brothers If if you're sort of new to Britain, the Gallagher brothers are a a pair of rock and roll sort of star brothers who are always falling out. And, you know, they're, they're as much known for their fights with each other as anything else. And it provides entertainment for a lot of us. Uh, and so Liam, the little brother, the mouthy one, it's always the little brother, it, you know. I'm, a, I'm an elder brother, so it's always the little one who stirs things up. Liam tweeted, how can such a mean-spirited little man, his, his brother, write such a beautiful song, he's talking about the song Dead to the World, knowing me, knowing you as you were. And that made me intrigued, because I hadn't heard of the song, so I thought, well, I'll have a listen to the song he's talking about. And here's a little excerpt from it. If you say so, I'll bend over backwards for love. But if love ain't enough to make it all right, leave me dead to the world. If love ain't enough to make it all right, leave me dead to the world, because I'm sleeping. It's a very good song, actually. We are not left to wonder whether Jesus' love is ultimately enough to redeem us and the world three days later we get a definitive answer because he walks back out of his grave it is enough it proves he was who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do life is lived on the other side Of despair. And Jesus faced despair, our sin and our shame, so that we could live. So, will you this morning, like this desperate criminal, place your trust in Jesus and find your life in Him? His love is enough and next Sunday we'll reflect and celebrate on that but for now reflect on the amazing grace that he offers you this morning to come to him whether for the first time or this thousandth time let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together